Chapter Thirteen of the Secret of the Silver Car by Wyndham Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Thirteen Down to the Sea. When Pauline had gone, Trent was immeasurably happier in the hope she had given him. Until her visit, his only chance of escape had been centered in the expectation that when once his hands were freed, he might file the bars. There was now a scheme in his head worth many of that. Half an hour after she had left, two men entered, guided by the now-assured Hensy. "'You have complained of the dirt here,' the secretary explained, "'and it will be removed.' The tiny spring saw was swept up unobserved. Trent saw it disappear now with a smile where before it would have been black tragedy to him. He slept well that night, and shaved himself next morning in high spirits. It was not easy, shaving with handcuffs on, but it was possible. Then he waited for some message from Pauline. Hence he came into the cell at five. "'Count Michael will see you at ten tonight. My friend, I warn you to be wise, and acknowledge defeat.' "'That's not my idea of wisdom,' Trent grinned so cheerfully that Hensey was vaguely disturbed. "'You are more foolish even than the others,' Hensey said, shaking his head. "'Brave men all three. For my part, I would be reasonable. I would say, I have fought a good fight, and the odds were against me. How much can I save from the wreck? That is the way to talk, my lord.' Suddenly he took a book from his pocket, a book tied with string and sealed, but not enveloped in paper. He handed it to the American. "'This is from a friend,' he announced. "'I bring danger on myself in giving it to you, but I can rely on your silence, eh?' "'Certainly,' Trent said carelessly, and betrayed no interest in the gift. "'At ten o'clock tonight? Is that it?' "'It is wise to acknowledge defeat,' Hansie said earnestly. "'We'll see when the time comes.' Trent returned. It's largely a matter of holding trumps, my good Hansie. Anthony Trent tore the string from the book eagerly. In the middle, placed carefully in a space hollowed among the leaves, were the bar keys which might, with luck, open the doors to safety. About them was wrapped a half-sheet of scented green note paper. On it was scrawled very faintly in pencil, "'I've put it where you told me to.' "'Thank God!' cried Anthony Trent. Then, with some difficulty, he managed to put the two thin steel bars in a special pocket long ago prepared for them. The hours seemed very long, until Hensy, with Sissek and Ferenc, came for him. The two servants carried their big service revolvers. The anxious moment was at hand, the moment that was to tell Trent whether he was to be utterly defeated or to stand a chance of escape. "'Take these off,' he said, holding out his manacled hands. "'No, no,' Sussek and Ferenc cried together. "'The Count said so,' Trent frowned. "'I have had no orders,' Hansi assured him, "'and that is one key I have not got.' For one desperate moment Anthony Trent thought of bringing down his iron-ringed wrists on Sussek's head and attempting to escape, but he put the thought from him as futile. There was still another trump to play." They led him, as he hoped, to the great room where the safe was, the room he had searched so carefully. In a carved oak chair at the head of a table sat Count Michael. Pauline was there, sitting in a chaise long, and smoking a cigarette in a very long amber and gold holder. 
She did not turn her face from the count to the prisoner until he had stood there silent for a full minute. Then she looked at him coldly, sneeringly, and said something to Count Michael which brought a peal of laughter from him. It seemed to Trent that he had never seen the two on such wholly affectionate terms. There were two doors to the room. At one stood Peter Sissek, revolver in hand. At the other, old Ferenc watched in armed vigilance. On the table before the count was a thirty-eight automatic pistol. Shades were drawn over the long, narrow French windows. In a chair before one of them, Hensi sat nervous as ever in the presence of his violent employer. Before the other window was a big bronze statue of the dying Gaul. The stage was set very comfortably for all but the manacled Anthony Trent. "'You see, I could have these off,' Trent began. "'These damned steel bangles that I've worn so long.' "'It is for yourself to remove them,' the Count said suavely. "'I am about to give you the opportunity. "'You see, I am generous. "'Others would blame me for it.' "'You are not generous,' Trent snapped. "'A coward never is.' The Count's face lost some of its suavity. "'Who dares call me a coward?' he cried. "'I do,' Trent returned promptly. "'You are a coward. "'Here am I.' an unarmed man among three with guns. The doors are locked, and yet you keep me here handcuffed. Generous. Brave. All his contempt was poured out as he said it. If I take them off, will you give me your parole d'honneur to make no effort to escape? Anthony Trent turned to Pauline. Madame, he said, as though to a stranger, I cannot congratulate you on the courage of your friend, so afraid is he of one single man that he wishes me to give my word I will not try to escape. He forgets I am an aunt in a strange and vast house filled with his servants, with death threatening me at any suspicious move. Are all your noblemen of Croatia as cautious as he? Pauline did not reply to him. Instead, she spoke to the Count in German. Pay no attention to him, she counselled. I know that you are brave, my Michael. Let him laugh at you for a coward if he wishes. I would not have him hurt you or frighten you for the world. Frighten me? cried the Count. Hurt me? He flung a little key across the table to Hensi. Take them off, he commanded. Trent examined his reddened wrists with a frown. This should never have been done, he declared. Then he turned to Hensi. I need a cigarette. "'I did not bring you here to smoke,' Count Michael said acidly. "'I brought you here to interrogate you. Remember that.' "'I've been without a decent smoke for nearly two weeks,' Trent returned, "'and I want one. Unless I have some, I shall not answer any of your interrogations. Think it over, Count.' Hensi looked at the American reproachfully. He had supplied his prisoner with the best of tobacco. That he had done so surreptitiously— robbed him of the privilege of recrimination. The two guards, not understanding a word of the conversation, could not deny Trent's statements. Count Michael Temesvar looked closely at his former chauffeur. He was standing on the rich red rug between the two windows. He was biting his lips. His face twitched, and his fingers worked nervously. It was plain that he suffered, as drug-takers do when deprived of their poisons. There was a cedar-lined silver box of cigarettes on the little table by Pauline's chair. This Hansi was commanded to place before the prisoner. 
Anthony Trent's symptoms were admirably assumed. He inhaled and exhaled in silent delight, and his face grew more peaceful. But he was still unsettled and nervous. The Count, remembering his iron-nerved driver, attributed the change as much to imprisonment and fear as to lack of tobacco. In a sense, it was a tribute to his power over the man who had thwarted him. He watched Trent stride up and down by the two windows, and ascribed it to a growing sense of the ordeal about to be undergone. "'I've got to keep moving,' Trent said. "'I've been tied up in a kennel for two weeks.' "'If you must, I shall permit it,' the other answered. "'But I warn you that the length of this table must be your limit. Otherwise my faithful men may have to shoot.' You understand? Perfectly, Trent said, growing more affable. I even give you my parole d'honneur not to go near the doors. Why rush on certain death? You are growing sensible, Count Michael said, smiling. I knew it would come. As you say, why rush on certain death? It is foolish. More, it is unnecessary, and to do so wastes one's energy. I have not yet had time to learn your name and rank, but I am treating you with you as an equal. Thank you, Trent retorted. If you call locking me up in a verminous, red-haunted cell treating me as an equal, I am hardly grateful. I dare take no risks, the Count assured him. You men who came here for my Lord Rosecarrel are different from others. I have not forgotten that Sir Piers Edgecombe killed three of my honest lads before he died. There are others who would have treated you less well than I. Now, where is the paper you stole from me and say you burned? What is the fate of ashes tossed to the four winds? It was never burned, the other snapped. Somewhere it exists in your pocket where I saw you place it. Remember this before you answer. If by your aid alone I find it, you may leave this castle. How? Trent demanded. To walk into ambush outside? There will be twenty square miles of country where none dare touch you. Do you need more than that? You who cast aspersions on the courage of others? Is it possible you are afraid? What is the other alternative? To join your friends. The Count laughed cordially. The idea seemed to amuse him. To make the third grave. First the trainer, then the butler, and last the chauffeur. I wonder what your chief will send me next. "'He will have no need to send anyone else,' Trent said affably. By this time his nervousness had disappeared, and he was cool and calm as ever. "'You mean he will give up the attempt?' "'Why should there be another, when I have already succeeded?' "'This is bravado!' the Count cried. It was his turn to be nervous now. The importance he attached to the possession of the paper seemed out of all proportion to its value.' Trent knew little of the great eternal European game of politics. For a few moments in Paris, the new world had its glance at the complicated working, but forgot it when booming trade held sway and salesmen took the place of diplomats. The elimination of the new foreign secretary meant a great deal to Count Michael. The other knowledge which Trent stored in his mind was equally dangerous, but there were others who could attend to that. No matter what part Anthony Trent played, the Count had assigned him the role of the defeated. "'It happens to be the truth,' Trent returned. He could see that Pauline was now listening intently. Her pose of antagonism to the stranger was swept away by her anxiety for his safety. 
her heart thrilled to see him standing there, debonair, smiling, dominating. It seemed madness to her, this avowal of success. "'You are learning wisdom,' Count Michael commented. "'We may define the term differently,' Trent smiled. "'I did not burn the paper.' "'Ah!' the Count breathed excitedly. "'Now we have it.' I preferred to keep it so that I could assure the Right Honourable the Earl of Rose Carell, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, that I had indeed succeeded. You will understand my feelings. Perhaps it was bravado, but none seems to believe that such papers ever do get burned. You, Count, seem to doubt it. "'Where is it?' the Count snapped. "'Your life depends on your truth.' "'I've put it in a safe place,' Trent said resuming his pacing of the room. The Count's excitement banished the air of toleration he had with difficulty affected toward one he hated. "'Where is it?' he bellowed. Anthony Trent was smiling, and his eyes were bright. It was one of his moments. "'I'm going to fetch it,' he said urbanely. Long ago he had made a careful survey of the possibilities of the room in which he stood. He had thoroughly scrutinized windows and doors as likely aids to future needs. Every pair of eyes in that great room was turned on him. Sissek and Ferenc, understanding no word, only saw that he was unmoved, unruffled, almost joyous, in the presence of the great Count Michael. They could not understand it at all. They only hated him the more. Hensie was rather thrilled with the spectacle. Here was a young and handsome man of a type he had longed to be, no doubt the bearer of an historic title, who, in the presence of great peril, dared to laugh at the head of all the Temesvars. Count Michael felt the constricting collar that now almost choked him. These other two who had preceded Alfred Anthony met death bravely, but they acknowledged failure. But this man was different. It was almost as though he thought himself the victor. What else would have nerved him to bandy words with his jailer? But of them all, it was Pauline who watched him most eagerly, and most feared for his safety. He seemed incredibly rash to antagonize the Count still further. Few guessed the cruelties to which he could sink when his amour propre was wounded. She had made up her mind that the man she loved so wholly should not suffer. So far the Count had no reason to suspect her interest in the stranger. His first jealousy had passed when she protested how needless it was. He trusted women with few of his political secrets, but she knew Trent was a marked man because he had stumbled on the identity of the princely guest. Therefore he would suffer unless her woman's wit could aid him. Knowing the Count's vanity so well, she perceived that every moment of this unperturbed attitude added to the severity of the punishment his prisoner would receive. "'You are going to fetch it,' Count Michael said thickly. Is it permitted to ask how and when? By all means, Trent said graciously. I'm going to fetch it now, and thus. He made a lightning quick leap toward the window, where Hansie was sitting in a low chair, and then a dive over the secretary's shoulder. Through the small panes of glass he went like a hurled rock. The shade torn from its roller wrapped itself round his head and shielded him from flying glass and piercing splinters. Two shots rang out, and he heard Hansie's voice raised in a shriek of agony. There were other sounds which drowned even this. The Count's voice bellowed forth instructions. 
He could hear Peter Sissek and Ferenc shouting, and then, as another shot followed him into the courtyard, Pauline's cry rang high above all other sounds. Trent landed on his shoulder, bruised but not seriously hurt. When he pulled the enveloping window-shade from his face, he was amazed to see that the room from which he had come was now in darkness. He could hear the men thrashing about it in a fury of rage at being unable to find the way of pursuit. Whether failure of the current was the cause, or someone had pressed the button, the delay was of incalculable value. Tramp raced across the paved courtyard and pried open the door of what had been the prince's apartment. It was unoccupied, as was that of the adjoining room where the military aide had slept. At the bedroom door, leading to the corridor, he listened carefully, but heard no sound. He opened it quietly to come upon a servant passing by. It was an unmannerly fellow who had often jeered at him when they used the common table, a tall, awkward, stooping creature with a malicious face. His eyes opened wide when he saw it was the detested English chauffeur. Visions of reward darted across his brain, and he made a movement as to apprehend the foreigner. He was instantly gripped with a hold, which agonized him as he sought to break it, and forced into the bedroom from which Trent had just come. Then the door was locked, and he was a prisoner. When, a minute later, his master and the others came bursting through, he supposed them to be the other than they were, and hid under a bed, where the redoubtable Sissek pursued him and beat him soundly, until his identity was established. Leaving him in the room, Trent made his way carefully to the armoire, that rock of refuge in a weary land, and entered it noiselessly. It was established that no stranger could have left the castle by any of its exits. Such as were not barred had servants near them. It was clear that Alfred Anthony was concealed somewhere in the vast building. His capture was only the matter of time, the result of careful searching. This search was gone about systematically, Count Michael directing his man personally. It was the Count's theory that one of his bullets, the first shot at which Hensi had screamed because of its nearness to his head, had wounded the fleeing man, and that he would sooner or later be traced by a trail of blood. Hardly had plans been made for the disposition of the searchers than an agitated footman reported Peter Sissek's wife with dire news. She was brought before her employer, trembling with excitement. "'Excellency!' she cried. "'He has escaped in the English car!' Pauline at the Count's side clutched his arm. "'Thank God!' she breathed. "'They shall suffer who let him pass!' the Count roared. "'Swine! Children of swine! Spawn of the devil!' "'Let me go after him, Excellency,' Peter Sissek pleaded. "'I will bring him back to you, dead or alive, as you command.' "'Fool!' the Count shouted. "'Who are you to do this? "'You who have not his skill, nor so fast a car. "'Get you to Agram. "'I will telegraph to Fiume and Zara and Trieste, "'and have him stopped for a thief.' "'But,' Pauline protested, "'how dare you let it be known that it is the paper he has stolen? "'Dare you invite notice of it?' The Count looked at her very oddly. Never had he looked so coldly. "'Is it also his car?' he asked. "'Have I no right to that?' Weeks before, Anthony Trent had hidden a spare key to the garage in a secret place. From the moment of closing the door of the armoire behind him, climbing down the copper pipe and starting his engine, Anthony Trent had not consumed more than four minutes. As he drove it out of the yard, he saw Mrs. Sissek running toward him. Soon they would be on his track again. He did not care. He knew there was never a driver in all Europe who could hope to catch him between Castle Rotna and Fiume. A quick glance had assured him all was well with his lion. 
Two extra wheels were carried, which could be put on in three minutes. There was gasoline in his tanks, and the purring hum of the motor was like a Beethoven symphony to his ears. And he knew that somewhere in the toolbox was concealed the little scrap of paper which had cost two lives already, and might take his own as toll were he not careful. He prayed that the gods of chance might give him no less than an even break. Down the mountainside he went singing. At night there was little or no traffic. The peasants were early abed, and the way would be deserted until he struck the Marie-Louise road. Anthony Trent knew that not a car in the garage would pursue him with any chance of success. They would probably send a telegram from Agram, but that contingency did not worry him very much. It had taken no more than a minute of his time to do damage that would take a hundred times as long to remedy. He smiled to think of the savage Sissek trying to start his pannard. Then they would attempt to get the Fiat going, and finally the old and tricky Mercedes. And they would all balk, because that skilled mechanic Alfred Anthony had had his finger in the pie. At the roar of his engines, magnified in the night silences, peasants turned over and went to sleep again. It was their lord, or one of his exalted guests, who passed. Sometimes one of them would hear, floating out for a moment, the sound of his singing. It was a night of triumph and hope for Anthony Trent. He had succeeded where others had failed. The hours brought him nearer to a sight of the woman he loved, and he could not put away from him the hope that somewhere happiness and content might wait for them. There was not an untoward incident in his journey until he reached the highland overlooking the harbour of Fiume. Day would break in less than an hour. Stopping his motor, he took the rain-stained document from its shelter. Pauline had not failed him. She showed her thoughtfulness by placing sandwiches and a flask of wine in the toolbox. He thought of her with a flood of gratitude. Until this reminder, he had forgotten her very existence in the thought of the other woman. Trent had not come idly to Fiume with the bare hope of being able to make his escape. He knew that there were in port several British destroyers that lay off a certain breakwater which he had observed on many occasions. Tied up at this stone pier were a number of rowboats. It would be an easy task to pull off to a destroyer and climb aboard. No commander would deny him the privilege he sought, and there was not a gun in Fiume which dare be trained on a British or American vessel. It was Anthony Trent's way to look for opposition in his ventures, and be a little uneasy if he met none. So far things had gone almost too smoothly. He had threaded his way through the narrow streets of Fiume without other than a few labourers, when he was suddenly halted by a policeman. The policeman stood before the lion and waved his sword. It was plain he laboured under stress of great excitement. Three others of his kind came running from a side alley. It seemed to the policeman that the great automobile made a vicious jump at him. He leapt aside with marvellous agility as the accelerated line passed him on its way to the pier. There was just sufficient light for Trent to see the destroyer lying at her anchorage. Everything would have been comfortably done but for the cries of the pursuing police. A groom of Count Michael's had ridden a fast horse into Agram, and the Fiume authorities were bidden apprehend a thieving chauffeur driving a blue and silver lion. There was so liberal a reward that the police force was almost disorganized in contemplating it. Pursuers among civilian laborers and sailors joined in the chase. Trent's heart sank to see the little cove where the boats were tied was not empty at this early hour, as he expected. There was a group of seven or eight fishermen getting their nets ready. Their quick ears caught sounds of the disturbance, 
and saw that the man in the motor was to be caught. They seized a two-inch hawser and stood across the pier barring the motor's way, four men holding to one end and three to another. Trent took the situation in at a glance. Stupidly enough, the fishermen supposed themselves to be able to stop the car of their own strength. Had they fastened the hawser around the cleats at their side, Anthony Trent would have gone down to defeat. It was plain that he could not carry out his plan of rowing to the destroyer with these men at his heels. There was one last desperate thing to do. The great car responded to the accelerator, and by the time it had reached the man holding the rope, it was going at fifty miles an hour over the smooth stone breakwater. Two of the men were jerked clear into the water. They were all thrown down, and one had an arm broken. Fascinated, they watched the great car racing down the pier, straight to destruction, as they supposed. Then they looked, horrified, as it seemed to hurl itself from the jetty, hurtle through the air, and disappear in a tomb of foam. When police and fishermen strained their eyes and could see no trace of the chauffeur, they naturally assumed he had been caught in the car. "'He has killed himself!' the sergeant cried. "'He was mad!' said another. Anthony Trent had no difficulty in freeing himself from the sinking lion. It was his wish to swim under water as far as possible, and so elude those who watched for him in the faint light. There was a strong current running, and the destroyer lay a couple of cable lengths distant. It was a hard swim, clothed and comforted as he was, and he dared not discard the garment that held the paper. There was a despairing moment when he thought he could never make headway against the tide which would take him back into the harbour. It was an astonished marine who saw the dripping, exhausted man clamber aboard and fall to the deck. "'I must see your commander at once,' Trent cried, when his breathing was easier. Lieutenant Maitland, awaked from his sleep, was not inclined to see him. "'What's he like, and the devil is it all about?' he demanded crossly. "'He's about knocked out,' the marine answered, "'and he says he won't tell his business to anyone but you.' Lieutenant Maitland put on a bathrobe and interviewed the stranger. He was instantly taken by the man's face and manner. He saw, too, that he was dealing with one of his own class. "'I have important dispatches for Lord Rosecarrel, the Foreign Secretary, which I must get to him at once.' "'Yes,' Maitland said interrogatively. "'I want you to take them and me,' Anthony Trent said. "'I'm afraid that's impossible,' said the officer. "'You see,' that is a little out of my beat. Even if your papers were for the First Lord of the Admiralty, I could not proceed to a home port without instructions. I am bound for Malta, and weigh anchor in a little while. Anthony Trent was silent for a moment. He knew that private matters concerning Lord Rosecarrel and his son had nothing to do with the government directly. He knew, too, that to commandeer a destroyer for a private errand was inadmissible. But he was determined to get back and had no appetite for Fiume. There was a trump card which he had yet to play. "'Why does a squadron of destroyers stay so long in Fiume?' he asked. "'Admiralty orders,' Lieutenant Maitland said briefly. "'They are here because trouble may break out at any moment. The information I carry is necessary for the interests of your country and my own. I'm an American, as I supposed you guessed.' You'll be thanked by the Prime Minister for taking me and my information back. "'Why not cable it?' Maitland suggested. "'I'll wireless it for you in code.' "'I dare not trust it,' Trent said emphatically. "'And they wouldn't believe it anyhow. 
Mine is a preposterous story, but it's one that your government needs to know. Can't Malta get on without you a little? It won't take long. You fellows travel at forty miles an hour. Who is to judge of the importance of the information? Maitland demanded. I have to think of that. If you are spoofing me, I run the certainty of court-martial. Really, I think I must beg you to be decently careful in asking this of me. That's only fair, Trent agreed. Does the name of William, Prince of Misselbach, mean anything to you? Only that I went to his funeral when he escaped from that island prison of his and was drowned. I was on the port guardship at the time. I understand the Allied powers breathed a sigh of relief that he had chosen to drown himself. Anthony Trent pointed to a group of boats at the end of the pier from which he had taken his leap. They were growing distinct in the light. "'Those fellows,' said Anthony Trent, accepting one of the officers' cigarettes, "'are grappling for my body. They believe I am dead. Drowned as deep as ever Prince William of Misselbach ever was. You have just as much right to think the prince dead. I've seen him. I know where he's been staying since his escape.' and I know who is behind the plot to put him on the throne of Hungary. Now, Lieutenant, do we steam back to England, or shall I cable it? I'll take a chance and slip back to Portsmouth. What you need is a hot bath and some hotter coffee. By the time you've fed and got into some of my togs, we shall be on our way back to fame or court-martial. The Lieutenant grinned cheerfully. He was still a boy, for all the stern years he had witnessed disaster by sea and land. Also, he liked Trent. It was rather a lark, he thought. "'By the way,' said Trent suddenly, "'if they wigwagged you from shore that you were harbouring a man supposed to have stolen a lion automobile from Count Michael Temeswar, the man who was at the bottom of the plot, would you feel bound to deliver him up to justice? I ask because I think some sort of police are on the way here now.' "'My dear man,' said Lieutenant Maitland, "'you have the good fortune to be aboard the fastest destroyer on God's wide waters. "'Also, steam is up, and we shall have started before the harbour authorities can get aboard. "'If they can overhaul, my old dear, you may ask me that question again.' When it was certain that Trent had made good his escape, the black rage that took hold of Count Michael plunged his household into a distress that showed itself on every troubled face except that of Pauline. She was not easily able to conceal her joy in Anthony Trent's good fortune. The prophecy of the gypsy that he would escape was fulfilled. She knew that rage must be eating at the Count's heart, a rage compared with which all his other frenzied outbursts were as nothing. As a rule he made Pauline his confidant, desiring only that she approve of his behaviour. Twice she had tried to get Hensy aside and learn what news, if any, had come of the masquerader. Hensy suddenly turned away from her. She supposed he had been so upset over his master's temper that he was nursing a grievance himself. She was in her room that night, about to take a gorgeous necklace from her firm white throat, when there was a knock upon the door. "'It is Mr. Hensy,' said her maid. "'Tell him I will not see him.' Pauline yawned. "'He has an important message from Count Michael,' said the girl. "'Which will wait until tomorrow,' Pauline said lazily. Hansie's voice made itself heard through the partly open door. "'I must beg you, madame, to come at once. It is imperative. 
The Count must have your advice on matters of importance. Pauline decided to go. After the silence of the day, the Count would tell her everything, and she was anxious to be reassured of Anthony Trent's safety. "'Where are you taking me?' she demanded, as Hansie guided her past the big room where Trent had been arraigned, the room from which he had made his escape. "'His Excellency cannot remain in a room with an entire window torn out. It would but be to invite a flock of bats to enter.' Pauline climbed two little flights of steps, which led to the topmost floor of the castle. "'I've never been here before,' she commented. "'Few strangers have,' he said locking it behind her. "'Strangers?' she repeated. "'Since when have I been a stranger?' She found nothing strange in his silence. Hence he was constantly a prey to the fear he might by some overzealous action provoke the wrath of the man he served. Probably he had not heard her question. She found Count Michael in a big, bare room, octagonal in shape, and knew it must be the tower which stood out boldly on the western corner of the castle. "'Why bring me here?' she said petulantly. She had no fear of the man who ruled his people as an autocrat. It is not in the nature of such women as Pauline to eliminate a certain feeling of contempt for the power of men whom they can sway by whim and artifice. Michael Count Temesvar was terrible to such as he hated, and a political force of sinister strength, but to the green-eyed woman who looked at him mockingly he was one of the weak and pliable pawns on life's board.' "'Sit down,' he said suavely. There was no sudden look of affection as he gazed at her. He spoke, she reflected, very much as he had done to Anthony Trent. But the ex-chauffeur had been a prisoner. She looked about her and saw that this was almost a prison. "'About this Alfred Anthony,' he began. "'I am told, although I do not believe it, that you were much concerned for his safety.' "'Who told you that?' she demanded. "'What matters that? It is untrue?' "'Naturally,' she answered, trying to fathom what lay behind his smiling face. "'Tell me this, Pauline,' he said, leaning forward. "'When the Sissek woman informed us that he had escaped, I thought I heard you say, "'Thank God! Why did you thank God when my enemy escaped?' Pauline was not so easily to be trapped. She remembered breathing her prayer almost at his ear, but she hoped in the excitement he had not heard. "'You're dreaming, Michael,' she exclaimed. "'Why should I say that?' "'Another thing,' the Count went on. "'This man would hardly have escaped if the electric lights had not gone out.' Abruptly the Count turned to Hensy. "'Tell me, did you see the engineer about this?' "'Yes, Excellency,' Hensy assured him. He tells me in technical terms, which I do not comprehend, that sometimes the light goes off for a few moments. It was the thunderstorm, or some atmospherical condition, I do not remember. Heaven seems to fight for him, Count Michael commented. First the light's extinguished, and then someone in this house of mine who gives him keys and aids his escape. The garage door opens itself to him, and lo, he disappears. "'He has an accomplice, you think, Excellency?' Hansi stammered. He was fearful that his master had learned of his carrying the book to the prisoner. Out of this slender fact the wrathful Count might be weaving plot enough to engulf his faithful secretary. "'I assure your Excellency,' Hansi cried, "'that I am entirely loyal.' 
Pauline was still not to be frightened by this changed mood of the Count and the agitation expressed on his secretary's face. She had been victor over him in a hundred violent scenes, and Pauline loved violence and the raising of voices. "'A curious thing,' said the Count meditatively, "'is that the lights went out only in my room. A well-trained thunderstorm, Hansi, eh?' "'Your Excellency means that someone turned them off. I was on guard at the window, as you remember.' "'I know that you were. Ferenc was at the north door, Peter at the other. The thief could not be suspected, and I was a dozen feet distant, sitting in my chair. And yet, Hansi, when I pressed the button, light again flooded the room.' "'I suppose you're hinting that I did it,' Pauline said calmly. When the Count smiled, it was another man looking at her, a man to whom she was a stranger. For the first time a thrill of uneasiness took hold of her. "'Is hinting the right word?' Count Michael retorted. "'I might have done it,' Pauline admitted. "'I remember when I heard the crash of the broken glass jumping up. I probably put my hand out to steady myself and touched the knob without noticing it. How unfortunate!' "'Again,' said the Count, I must question your right use of words. You said unfortunate, did you not? There is one other thing which has puzzled me, Count Michael went on. Peter Sissek's wife thinks she saw you come back to the garage two mornings back soon after sunrise. She was wrong? She was right, Pauline replied. I could not sleep, so I went out to try and find the missing coat. What loyal helpers surround me, the Count murmured. Before you retire to your well-earned night's rest, one other question. As many as you please, said Pauline, some of the burden of anxiety lifted. What is it? This thief knew of the presence here of certain exalted personages. He had never been anywhere but in the kitchen quarters and his own room. No servant of mine would have told him anything. There were many hours when I was busy and you played golf that you could have told him. I want your word that the information did not come from you. You have it, she said lightly. Now, as that is all, I shall go to my room. This hideous place chills me. Pauline, Count Michael said sternly, I have given you every chance to tell the truth. You have lied. It is in your nature to lie, but I thought that one of your training would know when the time came to speak the truth. Such an hour is at hand. The man was your lover. You helped him to escape. That I am certain of. You have betrayed me and my cause, and your cause, too, because you are a light of love, a thing who will accept a purchase price and then play false. My poor Michael, she said commiseratingly, you drink too much of your own plum brandy. Tonight you are crazy. Tomorrow I shall have you begging for a smile from me. As it is, I find you tedious. Hansi, open the door. The secretary made no move to obey her. She shrugged her shoulders. Neither of the men judged from her manner the fear that began to enwrap her. Yours will be a cold smile tomorrow, Count Michael said, and I, for one, shall not envy it. You have betrayed me, but in the end I have triumphed. They have caught him, Pauline. They are bringing him back to you. Do you think you'll be there to aid him when he is my prisoner again? 
If Count Michael wished for tribute to his victory, it was his now. The confidence left her face. She was white and smileless. The courage and bold carriage of her splendid body seemed taken from her. She leaned heavily on the bare table. Hansi, a prey always to emotion, could have wept for her forgetting she was his master's enemy. To Count Michael her attitude had the effect of whipping into white heat his repressed and savage rage. He had tried to believe that he still stood first in her affection. It was the vanity of the successful man whose desire has outlived his fascination. No woman could be stricken to the earth by news of the capture of a man unless he were unutterably dear to her. It was clear confession of the victory of Lord Rosecarrel's agent. What desire for mercy had been in the Count's heart died down. There came in its place the craving for instant and brutal revenge. "'So you did help him,' he said, in a low, harsh voice. "'Yes,' she answered. "'I thought I'd helped him to succeed.' "'And you admit you told him of the presence here of the Prince?' "'If you like,' she said wearily. "'If I denied it, you would not believe me.' "'Take note of that, Hensy,' the Count commanded him. "'It is important, this admission of guilt.' Pauline hardly heard him. The shock of learning that the man she adored had been recaptured overwhelmed her. She tried to shut out the thought of what punishment would be meted to him now. "'I will talk more tomorrow,' she said brokenly. Do you not understand that for you there will be no tomorrow? She could see now that the Count hated her. Jealousy had swept from him all memory of past affection. He could only think of himself as one betrayed by the man he hated. In vain she might look for mercy here. I am to be murdered, she said, looking from one to the other of the two. You are to be executed, he said. You took your oath to support this movement, and you have betrayed it. I have given you your chance to confess, and instead you perjured yourself. He raised a service revolver from his table. It was Hensy who, in this last black scene, rose above his fears to plead for her. The Count waved his protests aside. The woman did not move. "'Madame!' Hensy cried almost hysterically. "'You must not believe what His Excellency tells you.' "'Silence!' the Count cried angrily. But Hensy would not be stayed. At heart he was generous, and in a dumb, hopeless fashion he had long cherished an affection for Pauline. "'He escaped,' Hensy continued. "'We have just learned that they did not capture him. Already he is on a fast warship of his country, far from fear of pursuit.' It was as though a miracle had happened. The colour came again into Pauline's cheeks, and the drooping, broken figure grew tall, erect and commanding. "'So you lied to me, Michael,' she said slowly. "'You were ashamed to admit that he had beaten you. But I should not have lost my faith in him so easily.' She turned to Hensy. "'Thank you, my friend. You have made me happy.' "'Silence!' the Count cried. Prepare yourself. You cannot hurt me now, Michael, she laughed. Hansy thought she looked like a young girl, splendid and triumphant with the wine of youth. At most you can take my life. 
as I can never have him whom I love, I do not mind. Perhaps I am a little grateful to you. Why does your hand tremble, Michael? She held herself at this last moment with a brave insolence. Her head was carried high, and the Count knew she was laughing at him for having failed. He knew that her words were not idly spoken when she said she would die happy because her lover had escaped. She stood there flousing him, jeering at him, this woman through whose actions his own safety was imperiled, the woman whose fascination had so long enthralled him. And he realized that although it would be his hands which would strike her to the dust, yet she would be the victor. Untrembling she looked into the black mouth of the revolver. "'Why do your hands shake?' she repeated. "'Are you afraid he will come back and rescue me?' Hence he covered his eyes, as the spurt of flame jumped at her. It was his shriek which rang out. Pauline met her death, triumphant, smiling, unafraid. End of chapter 13